Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. What can early American politics tell us about modern American politics? Well, a lot, but you have to be careful how you do it. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. If you do that, this is the very last week, or I should say one day next week will be the very last time. But you've got a week left. One week to pick up my latest class at McClanahan Academy, Reading George Washington, for $70 off. Just use the coupon code WASHINGTON if it's July of 2023. You can get $70 off the class. It's the lowest price you'll ever get it. Not Black Friday, not any other time, not any other sale that I have, which I don't have many. But this is the lowest price you'll ever get it. So if you want that class, which is an awesome look into early American politics, which I'm going to talk about today, and I'm going to talk about the George Washington class today, you want to use that coupon code WASHINGTON to get 70 bucks off. Of course, you can also buy other classes there. You've already heard about that, though. So make sure you get over to McClanahan Academy and purchase a class or 20. Keep this podcast free of charge. Get great content. You can also click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com, the super thanks button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. You can go to Spotify for podcasters and become a supporter there. You can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But free and easy way to do it, support the show is rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Get that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm if you can. Send me those show requests. All those are painless ways to support the program. And, of course, you keep the show fresh. And now, this is actually a listener-generated episode. Not just any listener. It's a former student at McClanahan Academy on my live McClanahan Academy session. So the student sent over a request that I cover this article. And look, if you take the live classes at McClanahan Academy, you get access to me when I do those live. You can ask any questions you want. Then you always get pushed to the front of anything that uh, comes forward. I always address your questions and concerns first if you're a live student because you've got that access to me and we've created kind of a a teacher-student relationship that way. So if you become one of those live students, I will have another live McClanahan Academy session sometime in the fall. So watch out for that too. Get on that email list so you know. This comes from a McClanahan Academy student, and she wanted me to cover this particular uh, this particular uh, article on American education, and it has to do with early American history. Now, we have to be careful with early American history when we talk about it. And I'm going to dedicate this whole week to education in many different ways. We cannot fall into the same trap 
as the left does, oftentimes with simplistic, overly simplistic views of early America. And everyone does this when they first start thinking about these things. And even, I mean, even when you've thought about them for a long time, you can still get into overly simplistic narratives about the founding period, the early Federal Republic. And I'm going to talk about that here. Now, look, the intent of this piece is good in many ways. But it's a little confusing in how it's presented. And I think, again, that's where people don't really understand the complexities about early American history. And George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, all of these people. If I had to do it over again in graduate school, that's what I would have focused on more than the middle of the 19th century, which is also a complex period. But this early federal period is, uh, is fascinating in so many ways because of the way that we often portray the period. So you really have two holy grails in American history in so many ways. <clears throat> Maybe three. I should say three. When I say holy grails, it's how the interpretation affects what we think about American history. The first is the founding period. The Declaration, how we talk about that, and I've mentioned this on this program so many times, so many times I'm blue in the face and I talk about the Proposition Nation, how this is portrayed, right? So you have the founding period. you got the founding fathers, quote-unquote, even that phrase. You've got the Constitution. You've got the Declaration. You've got the American War for Independence. You've got all the great statesmen like Washington and Jefferson and Adams and Hamilton and on down the line. Very important period. It's one holy grail. The second, of course, fast forward 80 years, you've got the war. You've got Lincoln. You've got <clears throat> Davis. You've got the Confederacy. You have Calhoun sort of bleeding into that period. Of course, now he's in between that, right? Calhoun dies in 1850, but the way that Calhoun is used by people that talk about that period of time, or even by people at that time saying there were the descendants of John C. Calhoun. So you've got kind of this Calhounian legacy that people like to refer to. Of course, it's all misinterpreted. That's where it comes out. You know, the complexity of all this, people don't really understand Calhoun, but you've got that period. And then you fast forward about 100 years after that, and you've got the middle of the 20th century, World War II, through the middle of the 1960s, about that 20-year period. And that's another holy grail period, because how do we interpret the war? What about Franklin Roosevelt? What about the New Deal? You know, 1930s into the 1960s. What about the New Deal? Uh, what about opposition to the New Deal? What about the war itself and how we got involved in that? And then the aftermath of the war, which was often seen as this the 1950s, and then 1960s, you have the burgeoning civil rights movement. What does that mean for America? All of that. So you've got three Holy Grail periods and how we think about American history. And in so many ways, what people will try to do is tie a line straight through them to the present. And you can. I mean, you can see how there's some continuity there. And it's, it's, a, it's pretty easy to see, but what they try to do is create this progressive line, right? Now, on the other hand, conservatives try to create a line through that as well. You've got this, this, and this. But all of it has to do with things like race, right? I mean, so, well, here's the race to the race to the race, right? Here's race, race, race. It's all about. This is what the left tries to do. To their credit, some on the right will try to show some complexity. But often what they do is try to play the left's game, but just in the opposite. Now, see, race wasn't important here. Race wasn't important here. Race wasn't important here. This is all, you know, this race wasn't important. So they, they, there's these different narratives, which in some ways can be very simplistic. 
Now, can early American politics tell us anything about modern American politics? Absolutely. I mean, we're fighting over the same things today, but I would suggest that the, the bureaucracy, the deep state, all of the things have gotten so big that it's very hard to really relate to Alexander Hamilton in some ways, who had a one, Secretary of Treasury had one employee compared to the Treasury Department now. Or Thomas Jefferson, who really was a Secretary of State. I mean, George Washington was the man that drove foreign policy, and Jefferson just kind of did whatever Washington told him to do. Uh, you had a far different general government in 1791 than you have, or I'd just say 1793, than you do in 2023. Uh, the military was different. The foreign policy was different. And to our detriment, we've got, we've got this different situation now. The United States is vastly different. But there are some things that are still there, some undercurrents. One of those things, of course, is our understanding of what the Constitution means and what it does and how that relates to, to uh, foreign and domestic policy. You look at a Washingtonian, Jeffersonian foreign policy, it's much different than a progressive Wilsonian foreign policy, which is what we're still living under. It doesn't matter you know, who's expounding on that foreign policy, whether it's Joe Biden, Barack Obama, George W. Bush. They're all Wilsonians. Donald Trump was, a, was certainly an outlier, and at least rhetorically, from those kind of people. But really beginning in the 19... Teens, you had a, a, a trajectory of foreign policy change. You could say it started before that. I mean, it started with people like Republicans in the McKinley administration. And even during the war itself with William Seward, looking at places like Crete and what we should do about Cretan independence. I mean, there certainly is a reorienting of American foreign policy to imperialism. And the war is going to do that. That's why the war is one of those Holy Grail periods. But then you get the full expression of that really World War I, and then World War II uh, in the way that it affects so much, so much social change, right? societal change after World War II. A lot goes on there. But you can see that there are a clear difference between that foreign policy and our own foreign policy. When it comes to domestic politics and the relation of the power of the general government, this is something that was brought up a lot in the late 18th century, the early 19th century, that's something we still talk about. What does the Constitution mean? But we have a written Constitution. The problem is we also have an unwritten Constitution. We've got two Constitutions. Now, some people don't, they throw things around. They don't seem to understand things. So that's where this piece comes in. The title of the piece is Early American Politics. And it's from a, uh, it's the, the man that writes it is Douglas Wilson. Now, um, Douglas Wilson is, a Christian author. He's written a number of very popular books. He's you know, pretty important for a lot of people in the Christian community. And he has this blog. Uh, it's, um, it's blog and mablog. Um, it's theology that bites back is the uh, is the title of the blog. And so this was now it's not going to be a blog that you know millions of people are reading. And but the important thing about it, Doug Wilson. The important thing about this blog is that he has some material in here that it, you have to be careful because when you say some of the things that he says, you're, you're falling into the trap of being just as simplistic as the left 
and inaccurate at times when it comes to that. So I'm going to go through this, uh, this piece, at least part of it, uh, the first little bit of it, and talk about where his history is a little bit off, particularly when it comes to Washington and others. So he says, For those who know the backstory, it is kind of odd that you can go to our nation's capital and there visit both the Washington Monument and the Jefferson Memorial. So we'd say it's odd that you could see the Washington Monument and Jefferson Memorial. After all, the two men were political adversaries on opposite sides of the aisle, but this was before the center aisle was even built. Well, that's not true. Washington and Jefferson weren't really political adversaries at all. They had differences of opinion when it came to the English or the British and the French, but they weren't political adversaries. I don't think that's accurate. Jefferson was a little annoyed that Washington would side with Hamilton as much as he did. But I don't think Jefferson ever considered Washington to be his political adversary. In fact, I would say that almost everyone in America never thought George Washington was a political adversary. And that's because Washington was so good at being something to everyone. Really the only political figure, if you want to call him that, in the history of the United States was able to pull that off. Everyone loved George Washington. Everyone could claim George Washington. Washington was critical of both sides. Washington could see the problems in both sides. Now, of course, Washington's response to the Whiskey Rebellion irritated Thomas Jefferson. Washington's Neutrality Proclamation irritated Thomas Jefferson. But they weren't adversaries. And I would say the more pressing dichotomy would be Washington and Lincoln's monument. I mean, those would be the two that don't make sense. Washington and Lincoln. Not Washington and Jefferson, but Washington and Lincoln. And how they are juxtaposed. I mean, they're facing each other across the reflecting pond. They would be the two that are odd. Not Jefferson. Not the two Virginians. But the, the man from Illinois. That's the odd one at least according to the founding view of America, you see. Now, Lincoln certainly had much in common with someone like Andrew Jackson. Jackson was nominally from the founding generation. Really, he was too young to be part of it. I, I hate it when people say, Jackson's from the founding generation. No, he wasn't. It's like saying John Quincy Adams is from the founding generation. No, he wasn't. They were teenagers. They were of that second generation. They were the children of the founding generation, you see the children of the founding generation. They were a little older than someone like John C. Calhoun, of course, but, I mean, not much, you see. They were the children of the founding generation, and so that second generation of Americans. Just because Jackson you know, suffered during the American War for Independence and as a teenager participated in it, I mean, as a young teenager, doesn't the same thing with John Quincy Adams, doesn't make them members of the founding generation. It makes them the children of John Adams and, of course... Jackson's family, but um, different. It's different. Lincoln certainly, though, had much in common with the way Jackson, for example, would view the Constitution, view the Union, view the powers of the executive branch. And that's the next class at McLean Academy, reading Andrew Jackson. You're going to get that in just about a week or so. A little over, maybe. But that one's coming, too. 
Very important to understand those. And I've already got Reading Abraham Lincoln at McClanahan Academy too, so you need to pick that one up. But I would say that this is an incorrect assessment from the beginning. I mean, look, I, you know, Doug Wilson's doing his best here, but I think this is a problem. That is a misstatement. He says, but in another sense, this is just the way it ought to be, in that it helps us see how nations actually form in real life, which is to say they do not form on the drafting tables of the big thinkers, especially including John Locke. Locke gets to chime in, of course, but that is just a piece or two in a 500-piece jigsaw puzzle. I agree with that. I mean, we don't have a nation, though. There's no national government in America, at least constitutionally. We don't have one. We've never really had one nation. This is what Jackson talks about. It's what Lincoln talks about. But, and even Washington would say these kind of things. But he would lament in 1799 that it wasn't really there. All of his efforts never really panned out to create this kind of national consensus. And that, of course, is an issue. Now, the next subtitle is Unwritten Constitutions. He makes a very important statement at the beginning of this, which is true. He says, all nations, again, taking away that we don't have a nation, have unwritten constitutions, including those like ours that have written ones as well. I agree. All, I mean, well, but he doesn't, I don't think Wilson really understands what the unwritten constitution in America is. I don't think he does. Because he goes back to... uh, (laughs) the Supreme Court, as being something that's good. The Supreme Court is what's created the unwritten Constitution. He says, for example, of an unwritten Constitution or an unwritten requirement, there is nothing in our Constitution that requires us to have a two-party system. But a two-party system developed organically here anyways from the very beginning. There's nothing that requires us to... Well, that's not an unwritten Constitution. That's just what politics does. I mean... Um, you're going to have those in power and those out of power. You're going to have various factions. We didn't really have parties, though, not from the beginning, not parties the way we think of it. It wasn't until you got really to Andrew Jackson that you had parties, you had factions. It's what Washington talked about. You had factions, but not parties. There was no party. There was no Federalist Party or Republican Party. There was a Federalist faction and a Republican faction there were those that tended to kind of go one way or the other, and they would call themselves Federalists, or they would say they're anti-administration or Republican. But they weren't parties, the way we think of organizing parties today. They were factions. He says, the structural logic of our Constitution is not, does encourage a two-party system. It does not mandate it. The structural logic. Well, I mean, maybe... Uh, And Washington would argue it doesn't. Jackson would argue it doesn't. That there's patriots and then there's people that aren't patriots. There's people that should do the good of the union, right? Parties should be absent in a system like the U.S., at least a real federal system with limited power in the center because your only job would be foreign policy and commerce. Now, you could say, well, you could pick at enemies and at, you could pick, pick adversaries and, and alliances out of that. But the whole point should be the good of the union, which would not necessarily be parties because parties are about uh, limited 
and sectional or regional or state or personal agendas. Uh, that, that creates the factions which leads to parties. But in the federal system, it should be absent of those things because your only job is foreign policy and commerce, which ties also into foreign policy. That's it. That's your job. All the other minutia, all the stuff we wring our hands over, education, health, environment, all that stuff all comes down. Police, fire, roads, all that stuff comes down to the states and the localities. You could have factions there, but in reality, the, the our system doesn't really lend to a party environment unless the general government starts doing things that are unconstitutional. That's where you start seeing factions. Now, you could also make the case, make the argument, and some people have, that what we really had was a two-party system develop or a two-faction system develop because of foreign policy. And at this time, it was the British and the French. And then everything else kind of built off of that. Now, I don't know what that would work out today. Maybe it's Ukraine or anti-Ukraine. I'm not certain. Uh, but you could see factions develop that way. But all the other stuff, I mean, there wouldn't even be any of this hand-wringing about Washington, D.C. if Washington, D.C. only did what's supposed to do. We wouldn't even be talking about some of these issues unless it's an issue in your state. That's it. The parties develop because of unconstitutional government. The parties develop because of the centralization of power. The unconstitutional centralization of power, which is foisted on the United States, not because of an unwritten constitution... Well, you could say it is because it's illegal acts. But it's the Supreme Court. It's Congress passing things it shouldn't do. So the, he's kind of a little bit uh, hazy on what this unwritten constitution means. He says, so in a parliamentary system, all the horse trading is done after the election. And a government is formed sometimes in surprising alliances. In our system, all the same horses get traded, but it is done before the election, within the primacy or primary politics of the two respective parties. The only thing you could say that it invites parties is the single-member district plurality voting, the winner-take-all kind of system, where it's very difficult to have multiple parties because, well, I mean, it's single-member district plurality. But in some ways, you could argue that would actually lend to more parties Right, because I mean, if you had four candidates, you could get, you could get, you know, twenty-eight percent. You could win. You could win the election. You only need twenty-eight percent. Parliamentary system, you know, you'll have coalitions develop. You have percentages and all kinds of things. You get so much because you know each party gets represented so here and there. So he's basically saying that that single-member district plurality voting has lent to to political parties. This is something that political scientists have talked about for a long period of time. But that's, I mean, in some ways, sure, but... Uh, but again, parties coalesce around issues oftentimes, and those issues are unconstitutional abuse of power that the general government has foisted again on the American public. 
He says, in the early years before the Constitution was ratified, <clears throat> the two factions were the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. After ratification, these respective sympathies took shape in the two political parties, the Federalists and the Republicans. Now, here's some important things about this. There's a bleed over. Not all the Federalists became Federalists, and not all the Anti-Federalists became Republicans. In fact, there was some crossover at times. Some of the people that supported ratification, and this is where I hate the term Anti-Federalist because they were real Federalists. You had the Nationalists and the Federalists. Federalism won. The Anti-Federalists forced those, the quote-unquote Anti-Federalists, the real Federalists, forced those supporting the Constitution to admit the Constitution was going to retain its federal character, going to retain the federal character of the Articles of Confederation. It had to. And so people like John Dickinson, who at one time was a proponent, would be considered a Federalist, becomes a Republican. And you had a number of people that would do this. This is not the Constitution I supported. But then you also had someone like Patrick Henry, who was an opponent of the Constitution, who became a Federalist because he was worried about the French Revolution spilling into America and people would be running around lopping off heads. He didn't like the anti-religious tone of the French. He was a very devout Baptist and he thought this was going to be dangerous. So there was certainly a religious element to Patrick Henry and what he was doing too, but also he was afraid of these anti-religious Jacobins. So again, too simplistic... Saying Washington was a Federalist is actually a mistake. Washington was nothing. Washington wasn't really a Federalist. He wasn't a Republican either. He was, um, he was Washington. Now, he would lean with the Federalists. He would lean with people like Hamilton or John Adams. He would lean with them. And after he's out of office, he tried to persuade people like Patrick Henry to run in opposition to the Jeffersonians. Because, again, Washington was also concerned about the effects of the French Revolution. But you look at you know, Patrick Henry and running against John Randolph of Roanoke, who was as conservative as you can get. So this is where all this stuff kind of gets a little hazy. To say Washington was a Federalist is a misnomer. Now, John Adams, you could say, was a Federalist. Thomas Jefferson called himself a Democratic Republican. But remember, Jefferson's first inaugural were all Federalists, were all Republicans. He very much had a Washingtonian tone to that. Same thing Washington was trying to do in the Farewell Address. Look, we don't have factions in the center of the government. There's no factions in Washington, D.C. This is not what we need. If we have a real government that does what it's supposed to do, we won't need factions. Right? So... The idea that the unwritten Constitution creates factions is true in a sense that the government is passing unconstitutional laws, but that's not part of the unwritten Constitution. That's the government doing what it shouldn't be doing in the unwritten Constitution. He says, but don't be misled by the names. These Republicans were not the same as the party that formed at the time of Lincoln, although they are helpfully called by the same name. These letter Republicans came into being after the Whigs blew up. Still with me? In other words, political parties can come and go, but they're always, on average, two, give or take, a bull moose. But again, that's not because of the Constitution, the unwritten Constitution, necessarily. Uh, this is just the way that you know, factions developed. 
You could argue it's because of government power. But that's all. I mean, he, he doesn't say that. So he says, back to the founding. He said, the Federalists wanted a strong national government and the Anti-Federalists were jealous for the preservation of state sovereignty. Less generally true. In this regard, the formation of the Constitution itself was a Federalist victory and that they wanted a Constitution that closely imitated the English Constitution, which they got. False. False. It was a victory for the Anti-Federalists because what the Federalists had to prove, what they had to promise, was that they were going to maintain the government as under the Articles of Confederation. And if you're saying they got the English Constitution, um, well, that would mean it would be an unwritten Constitution because that's an unwritten document. And the way the English Constitution works is that the Parliament passes laws and then the courts decide if they're constitutional or not. So in other words, the Constitution becomes court decisions. That's not what we got. That's not what we got at all. Not even the Federalists argued that. The proponents of the document, they didn't argue that at all. That's what we got later. That's not what the Federalists argued. At the same time, the Anti-Federalists did us all a big favor by making it necessary to add a Bill of Rights in order to secure ratification. Uh, that's true, but you could also argue that's a dangerous part of this because if it wasn't for the Bill of Rights, then the uh, the Wilsonian position articulated at the State House Yard speech would still have to be in effect. In that, a Bill of Rights would be unnecessary. Roger Sherman, Alexander Hamilton said the same thing. A Bill of Rights was unnecessary because the general government can only do what we say it can do in the document itself. And if it doesn't say you can infringe upon, say, the freedom of the press or freedom of religion, it can't do it. So what the Bill of Rights has done in some ways was basically codify an alien interpretation of the Constitution. Well, we know it said you couldn't do it, but we're worried about you could anyways. Now, if you look at the preamble to the Bill of Rights, it says to prevent misconstruction. That's what the Bill of Rights are there for. So, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing that we have it, but it's the way that it's been used now that's the problem. It undermined this very important argument for ratification in that the general government was not going to abuse its powers because it only had those expressly delegated in the document. That's it. So he says, the Constitution as it received it at the founding was therefore a compromised document, a Federalist document with an anti-Federalist with anti-Federalist suspicions folded into it. Well, of course, at the founding when? I mean, in 1791 when the Bill of Rights is ratified or at the founding when the Constitution was ratified in 1788. Which one? Which founding are we talking about? Or are we talking about the Articles of Confederation? I mean, what are we talking about? And yet, nevertheless, after ratification, the Republicans continued to be wary of centralization and jealous of states' rights. And that division continued down to the war between the states where, when that particular debate went to the next level. Okay. I mean, that's true. One of the more helpful historical exercises I like to work through is that of trying to identify where I would have landed, landed in post past controversies. Excuse me. This is of limited use when thinking about the Athenians and Persians or the Romans and Carthaginians, but can still be surprisingly helpful. But when it comes down to closer to our time, this exercise applied to our earlier history can really help you sort out what is actually going on now. 
The Constitutional Convention itself was irregular, meaning that there was no provision for any such thing under the Articles of Confederation. True. That's also true. So he's trying to figure out, where would I have been in the founding period? They just did it. At the same time, it was done decently through duly appointed representatives, and the results of their proposal did not take effect until nine of the 13 states ratified it. All true. It was not a coup. At the same time, anti-federalist Patrick Henry was not imagining things when he famously smelled a rat. There were certainly machinations. Again, true. This is where John Dickinson said in the Philadelphia Invention, you know, experience must be our only God. Reason may mislead us. We don't want we don't want reason. We want experience. That's what Patrick Henry smelled. The rat of innovation. But these things were complicated. When Shays' Rebellion erupted in 1786, it had to be suppressed with private fund financing because Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, did not have the wherewithal to take care of it. But also, at the same time, anybody who reads through the details of that rebellion needs to grant that the irate farmers were not imagining things. They were being mercilessly worked by the system. So if you have a simplistic white-black hats approach to history, you're going to have trouble. Jefferson was wrong in his sympathies for the French Revolution and his appeal to government by reason, but he was right about that government being best that governs least. Adams was right about the British Constitution. <clears throat> no, he wasn't. Yeah. Well, Adams said about the British Constitution is as the best constitution ever if you could get rid of the corruption, which you can't. And he was aware of that. When Hamilton rejoined, no, it's the corruption that makes it perfect. He's talking about the unwritten model, which is all the behind-the-scenes stuff that leads to the Supreme Court decisions or the British court decisions that make that Constitution work. The corruption. Adams didn't want any of that. But the Alien Sedition Acts was a piece of work. True, I mean, but... Uh, the British Constitution is not a good example for how we should govern in the United States. It's an unwritten Constitution. Entirely unwritten. This is where I'm not so certain Wilson is getting all of the stuff here. He's kind of being inconsistent. And again, this is this too simplistic language is would would force you to believe some things you shouldn't believe. Jackson represented the rising tide of populist individualism, which did a lot of damage, but he was right about wanting, not wanting a central bank, and so on. And Jefferson was an anti-nationalist, but his decision to go through with the Louisiana Purchase was a nationalist masterstroke. Jefferson was um, not an anti-nationalist. Uh, he was uh, someone who was an anti-centralizer. You could call that nationalism. He certainly believed in the benefits of union, but nationalism is something else. I mean, again, so what do these terms even mean? Alexander Hamilton was no doubt pleased as punch. People are not ideology units. People are people. Uh, so, I mean, this is, this is where you get to these, I think, too simplistic terms. That's why I said at the beginning, we have to understand if we're going to use education and it's every way that it has to be done, you have to get things right. And so he says, because man is sinful, every system can be abused. Well, that's true. He says, the Federalists wanted a constitution like the English Constitution, with George Washington reckoned in that number. 
Uh, Washington actually loved the American Constitution, the written Constitution. I don't. Washington didn't really say much about the English Constitution at all. At all. He loved the rights of Englishmen. He loved the liberties, the English liberties. He loved all of that stuff. But he also loved the American system that had been codified, the written constitutions, the principles by which he thought the American War for Independence was fought. And again, I get into all this in reading George Washington. All of it's there. I talk about Washington's positions. I go into in the 1760s and 1770s when he said some things about this stuff, 1750s. He said some things about this. Of course, 1780s, I talk about it there too. He says, but Washington had been the leader of our fight against British tyranny, which had been imposed on the colonies in spite of the prote protections promised by the English Constitution. In other words, the Americans were fighting to regain their rights as Englishmen, and the Englishmen who were fighting them were engaged in the task of trying to take them away. In other words, Washington thought that the system was good and worth fighting for, even though the official guardians of that system had betrayed it, kind of like now. So the system was good. I mean, you could make the point that he believed in the Magna Carta, the English Bill of Rights. He believed in those things. He believed in the traditions, the rights of Englishmen. Yes, he did believe in that. Maybe not the system. He didn't really believe in the monarchy at all. So the system, maybe not. Uh, but he certainly did like the fact that you had these, these very ancient traditional rights of Englishmen. There is that there. I mean, you... Again, this is a little too simplistic in how he's painting this. Washington said a lot of things in private letters and public speeches. He always praised the American efforts at liberty and independence and the American principles, but he didn't really talk a whole lot about British principles. He did say some things about the English, but more than anything else, Washington wanted independence. Because he thought there were problems with the British system. Wilson says, There are many detail, details involved in this, but here is the zoom-out view. When the colonies were formed, they were given their own charters by the king. That's not 100% true. Some of them were proprietary colonies, so they had private, in, private involvement, private investment, and then later became rural colonies. These charters included the right to have their own legislatures, which were the bodies that had the authority to impose taxes, because part of the English Constitution was no taxation without representation. That was not an American innovation. It was a right that Englishmen had, and which the English Parliament was trying hard to ignore. That's true. I mean, the Americans thought that they could only legislate on the issues of taxation for themselves. Though, though, as Jack Green and others have pointed out, that kind of came a little later. Um, it wasn't necessarily right away, but they started really talking about this in the 18th century. Parliament had no authority to tax the colonies any more than the legislature of Oregon has the authority to tax the citizens of Arizona. Because of political turmoil in England over the course of the prior century brought about by the Grandiose claims of the Stuarts, this resulted in Parliament chopping one off one king's head, Charles I, and running another, running another king off, James II. This naturally made Parliament feel like they were pretty hot stuff, and so they started levying taxes on the colonies just to show everybody who was the boss now. 
This is unconstitutional, but there was no Clarence Thomas around yet to slap it down. He was not even out of law school. Thus, the impasse and the resort to arms. Now, the thing is, parliamentary supremacy, which is what he's talking about here, and the virtual representation had not yet been litigated, but it could have been, and it could have gone through the court system. It's just that the American colonists decided to go another route. They could have tried to litigate this through. And probably the, par- the, the, the British court system would have sided with Parliament. So then what recourse would the colonies have had? But it's not certain they would have. It's not certain. But see, that's the unwritten constitution. There is no written English constitution. They just made it up as they went. And in this case, they didn't have anything to rely on. It was just custom and precedent. There's nothing in the unwritten English constitution that says this stuff. It would have had to have been litigated over time. So the Federalists knew that the problem was in men and not in the systems that such men were occupied in distorting and trampling. Although the British system had been used against them and they had fought and bled to resist those abuses, they still thought the system was better and offered more protections than any other on the market. In contrast, the French revolutionaries wanted to scrap the ancient regime and invite the men with big brains to figure out a system for us with nothing but the light of pure reason and the spirit of democratic uplift. Whenever people start thinking like that, it is time to start looking around for the tumbrils and guillotines. They're not far off. So uh, what's amazing about that, of course, is that the French, the early leaders of the, of the French Revolution, modeled their vision after America because they thought America, the United States, had done some of this stuff too. That there was a break from tradition in America and some of the things they asserted human rights, the rights of man, liberties. There was something else there to it. You see, the, the American system did have the anchor of tradition that the French did not. They were going off in a completely different direction from what traditional France had ever been. In France, when the Estates General met during the reign of Louis XVI, they had not been called in over a hundred years. They were dissolved. So, This was not a tradition that you had in France of having a legislature, really. You had it in in, uh, Britain. You had it there. So the French are looking outside to try to make this thing work, whereas you did have custom and precedent in the British North American colonies and, of course, in, in Britain itself. You could also make an argument that the Philadelphia Convention was the big brains in America getting together, too. I mean, this is, uh, (laughs) was it really the people until you got to ratification, but you had a bunch of people. I mean, this is where John Dickens said, well, hold up here. We got too much innovation going on here. We got to rely back on tradition. It's got to come from somewhere. And they talked about not just England, but also other places, too. Because men are sinners and because the sinfulness goes down close to the bone, they will sin with whatever material they might have. If you centralize the government, they sin with that. If you decentralize it, they sin with that. If you have a strong executive, they sin with that. If you have a weak executive, they sin with that. So the American system of government as as it was originally received from England and as it was remodeled by the founders to fit with our circumstances and and as it has subsequently evolved over the last two centuries is still worth preserving. It is running on two cylinders now, but it is still running. The latest example of the checks and balances still working would be the spat of SCOTUS decisions handed down just last week. 
Now, this is where I think he's he's uncertain about a written constitution. That would be an unwritten constitution that we would allow the Supreme Court to essentially invalidate or validate the laws of Congress or the states. That's what the British do. Our system was supposed to be different from that. A written constitution does not allow for that. A written constitution is supposed to be the, the check, right? Not the Supreme Court ruling from on high. That creates an unwritten constitution. And the left is aware of this, which is why they have all this time dedicated to these things. I covered this in a McClanahan Academy Live class when we just talked about uh, commentaries on the Constitution. One of the last parts of it was we looked at these written and unwritten constitutions and what the left has to say about these things. The unwritten Constitution really is the problem because you don't know the rules. A written Constitution codifies the rules. The unwritten Constitution lets you go beyond the rules. This is what states can do, but not the central government. He says, but constitutional liberty cannot be preserved long-term without someone declaring war on the administrative state. As Philip Hamburger has shown in his book, an administrative, is administrative law unlawful? The answer to the question is posed is yes, it is unlawful. The kind of regulative, regulative state that we currently function under, think EPA, ATF, IRS, the other kind of alphabet enemy, is precisely the kind of state that our constitution was designed to prevent. The written constitution, yes. The unwritten constitution, no. you got to remember, all that stuff has been declared constitutional by the Supreme Court in the unwritten model. So his definition of unwritten is a little bit off. But the unwritten model is working here. At the time of the American War for Independence, despite all the grotesque encroachments, there was still some fight left in those who wanted to restore the old order, which they successfully did. The fact that it needs to be done yet again should surprise absolutely no one. So he's saying, look, we're going to have to take this on again. We're going to have to do this over again. But we have to be careful. And there's some, there's some truth in this piece. We have to be careful about these simplistic visions of Washington and Jefferson. And we have to understand what an unwritten constitution is and what a written constitution is supposed to do and what the founding generation thought about the British model or something else. They didn't look at the U.S. Constitution as a continuation of the British model, necessarily. They were fighting to preserve the rights of Englishmen. They thought of it as something different because it was written, which is entirely I mean, revolutionary compared to what they had in Britain. It was a written constitution. It wasn't based on court decisions and the common law. Now, the states would get the common law and they would use that, but the whole point of the U.S. Constitution and the Articles of Confederation, by the way, and all the state-written constitutions was something entirely different. It was to confine government through a written document. Not to have the courts willy-nilly do whatever they wanted. That's what you could do in Britain, and that's where you saw some abuses and where the, uh, the founding generation thought these things were a problem. So, this is a really interesting piece. We're going to talk a lot more about education this week. We have to get the education right. I would take this, though, over a lot of the other garbage that comes from the left. This is actually more right on in some ways than, than not. But I would... We have to make sure we get our history correct, and that's important. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.